Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suspect that uh, one way or another, all of us have some Christmas traditions. It might be the the food you make. It might be the way you uh, decorate your house. It might be lights you put up outside. It might be uh, books you read or games you play or puzzles you put together. Uh, It might be be, uh, movies or shows that you watch. That's certainly the case with us. We, uh, one of our favorite traditions is to watch A Christmas Carol together. I, I love A Christmas Carol. In fact, I don't know if you can see this, but my tie this morning is a Scrooge and, and the Christmas Carol that, you know, my family gave me a number of years ago. It's Scrooge smiling. I don't know that the message was exactly that I'm like Scrooge, but maybe it is sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, I read The Christmas Carol every year. I, I love listening to the old radio broadcast of uh, Campbell's theater that uh, does it with Orson Welles and Lionel Barrymore starring in that. But the highlight is that we all sit down and we watch the 1951 version of A Christmas Carol starring Alistair Sim. And uh, we think it's, it's the best rendition of that. Uh, it, they've colorized it, but we have a tendency to, to more often than not watch it in black and white. It just feels more authentic. But, but we love that story. And at the beginning, as the credits at the beginning are, are rolling and, and you're, you're seeing all the things and this ominous music playing, the very first words out of the mouth of the narrator are sentences from the opening paragraphs of Dickens' book. And with this ominous music in the background, the narrator says, Old Marley was dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come from the story I'm going to relate. Dickens' point is, if you don't realize what has happened to Jacob Marley, the rest of the story really loses its impact. And I thought of that as I was reading once again these words of Luke in, in the opening part of the second chapter, because I think what Luke is telling us here, or at least one of the things Luke's telling us here, is that we need to understand the meaning of the census for the rest of the story to have the kind of impact on us that I think Luke wants it to have. The census, Luke really believes the census is important because he mentions it four times in the opening five verses. And and he keeps referring back to the fact that everything that's happening here with Mary and Joseph is related to the census. Related to them going to Bethlehem to register for the census. It's all about the census. And I think Luke's point is that Caesar Augustus, who makes the decree of the census, says to people, I'm in power and you will do whatever I want you to do. The census is a way for Augustus and Rome to to get funds and wealth from people. It's a way also to remind people that they... They are pawns in the the power structures of Rome. And, of course, that's difficult for the people. They have to get up. They have to move. They have to go other places for who knows how long. And and you know that that it's an imposition on them, and all of them are saying, I wish he didn't have that kind of power over us. It makes me think of that scene from Fiddler on the Roof. 
Remember that scene where the people who, you know, their lives are continually disrupted by, by the, the, the power of the czar. They come to the old rabbi who, who keeps saying, there is a blessing for everyone and everything. And they come to the old rabbi and say, Rabbi, is there really a proper blessing for the czar? And the rabbi says, yes. May the Lord bless and keep the czar far, far away from us. And I think that's kind of the mindset that, that the people have about Caesar Augustus. They're tired of all of his power, moving them around, telling them what to do, controlling their lives. But the problem is there's absolutely nothing they can do about it. And Caesar knows that. Caesar understands that in this world, the kind of power that he has is what moves the world. Caesar Augustus was, um, was, a, was an emperor who really sort of began the idea, or at least enhanced the idea, and, and promoted the idea that as the emperor, he had divine qualities. That, that people should view him as, as almost godlike, and even some godlike. And that, that they should worship him. And, and he promoted that idea and, and, and the people had to embrace it because of the power that he had. And Caesar's power on this earth had the ability to look at people who he said have no power, who have no, really no identity in this world other than to be pawns in his schemes. And Luke wants us to understand that's the nature of the world in which he's writing about. That's the way the world operates. The people with power do anything they want to do, and they make everybody else do whatever they want them to do. That's the way the world operates. And into that world, Luke says, but what they don't understand is that though Caesar Augustus thinks that all of these people are pawns in his schemes, the reality is Caesar Augustus is a pawn in the purposes of God. Luke says it is, it's this census that moves Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, a place they would never have gone without that. And by doing that, it fulfills the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. And while Caesar Augustus believes that he has all the power, Luke says to us, yeah, it's not true. Despite the optics and despite what it looks like to everyone, Luke says, this is simply not how it is. God has the ultimate power. The eternal God is the one whose plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. And every other mindset about earthly power is simply flawed. The importance of that is not just that God has power, but the importance of that is that the God who has the power is a God who cares about every single person. Every single person has value and worth in the kingdom of God. And it sets him apart from the gods of all the nations they worship. It certainly sets him apart from all of the earthly powers that try to take control. The powers that say, we have value and worth, and all of these people do not. 
But in the kingdom of God, that's simply not how it is. You see that in, in Mary's Magnificat. In the Magnificat, Mary begins, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He's brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. Interesting thing that Mary says. That because the Messiah is coming, God is going to care for those who are not cared for naturally. He's going to give grace and worth and value to people that the powers of this world say are powerless and insignificant and unimportant. Where would Mary get an idea like that? I think it's because that's what God's been telling his people through the centuries. Esau Macaulay makes an interesting statement that says, if God had chosen as his holy nation the Egyptian slave masters instead of the Israelite slaves, a completely different kind of God would have been revealed. I never thought about it quite like that before. But what he's saying is, it, God in his great power and his, in his infinite power cares for the people that the power structures of this world take advantage of and manipulate and call insignificant. But in the kingdom of God, they are not insignificant. In value and worth, they mean something to God himself. It's a complete reversal of that idea that is typically found in the power structures of our world. I sometimes think that we wrestle with that idea. Of course, it's natural that we would wrestle with it. Israel wrestles with it. The church has wrestled with it through the centuries because we live in a world in which it looks like the power structures are actually the ones who manipulate everything that goes on. We live in a world in which power wins, in which those who have the most weapons win. We see it all around us. And when, you, when you're continually bombarded with those messages, it's easy to forget. And what happens when we forget that God is the ultimate power and the kind of God that he is with that power, and when we begin to fall into the trap of believing that the power structures of this world are where the real power lies, what ends up happening is we become fearful and insecure. And we start embracing the powers of this world as if they are the ultimate power. And we become, as someone said to me this last week, we become, we become smaller people. Because when, the, when, you, when we embrace the power structures of this world as if they are the ultimate, then we get lost in those power structures. Sometimes I think that as we've gone through this political process, it's so easy to get caught up in that. It doesn't matter what side of, of politics you're on. It doesn't matter what, what side of, of any of it you're on. It's so easy to get caught up in thinking that if this person's elected, then everything's going to fall apart. Or if this person's elected, everything's going to, get fall, is going to fall apart. 
And, and, and sometimes we can get so caught up in that that we forget that the ultimate power is not any of the political structures of our world, as important as they may be. The ultimate power is in God himself. And he is at work. And it changes things. Instead of a small view of life, instead of, a, instead of shrinking us down to, to the, the limitations of the world's power, when we understand and believe and embrace God's unlimited power, it expands us. You see that throughout people over and over again, the pages of Scripture and people throughout history. You see it both ways. I mean, you know, when, when, we, when we believe that the power structures of this world are what we really need to embrace, and that's really the place where transformation and change takes place, that that is the ultimate end, then... You know, we, we start fighting for our own rights. And other people become not people we cooperate with, but people we compete with. Because after all, there's only so much power to go around. I mean, in the power structures of this world, it, it is really a zero-sum game. Because if I have power, that means you don't. And if you have power, that means I don't. And we are continually caught into this trap of fighting for more power and fighting to be on the side of power and fighting to get more power and trying to keep people from getting power because if they have it, we don't and we want it. And we step back and realize how often so much of what we're living for is about trying to grasp for our rights. I suspect... The church has always wrestled with that. That's why Paul writes to the Philippians about Jesus. He says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he had in very nature was God, he had every right to, to grasp being God. He gave it up and humbled himself. He didn't grasp it, but he became a servant, even to the cross. It's not about competition it's about seeing the kingdom from God's perspective that he is the ultimate power and in him everything is different. I've been reading a biography again of, of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a, a missionary in the 19th century and even as a teenager, God put a passion in his heart for China. He he, he, from that moment on, the trajectory of his life was to get to China. And not, he had his passion not just for, for China itself, but the whole nation of China, and particularly the inland part of China. Because at that time, in the middle part of the 19th century, the only place where missionaries were, were were the places where missionaries were allowed, and that was just a few port cities. And to take excursions beyond those was, was really against the law and broke the treaties that, the, that at that time mostly the British had with the Chinese. And, and it was very dangerous. But he had a passion for the whole nation of China. And as he prayed and thought, he kept coming and he went, finally went to China. And all over and over again, he kept coming into obstacles where, the, where various governmental and other power structures kept blocking the way. And then he would watch God work around them to do even more than he could have ever dreamed or imagined until eventually he started, he started a mission society where they went to the inland part of China, hundreds of missionaries, millions of people coming to Christ because he believed that 
the ultimate kingdom was not of this world, but it was eternal from God Almighty. That changed everything. And God worked through, God worked around, God worked in spite of all of the power structures that he dealt with. But the bottom line was he believed God was always at work. And that's where he placed his energies. You know, it probably shouldn't be a surprise that Luke tells us that when Jesus is born, he is, he is laid in a manger because there is no room for them, for him depending on how you translate that. And there are a lot of, of dis, there's a lot of discussion now about what exactly was going on there. And it's a good chance that it may not be exactly like it tends to be portrayed in our, in our typical Christmas pageants. More than likely, Mary and Joseph don't arrive in Bethlehem the night that Jesus is born, but they're there for a while. It may not be that, that there was an innkeeper who stood there and said, sorry, no place for you. You're going to have to go find something else. There's a good chance that because Joseph was a relative there and hospitality was so vital to their, to their lives that, that they were invited into a home. And in the homes there, many, especially the, the, more, the poorer homes, the common homes, they, they had a lower level uh, where the, at night they would bring the animals in so that they were protected and they were protected from the environment, protected from thieves. They'd bring them in there and they had built-in mangers in that part of the house. Most houses had a room like that, and they had a guest room. And so, more than likely, Mary and Joseph were in some kind of a structure, a house like that. But I think it's interesting that Luke is still making the point that Jesus is laid not in an ornately designed crib. He's laid in a manger. There's no room for him to be in the place that you would normally put a baby, whatever that may end up being. And it shouldn't surprise us you would think that if Jesus comes as, as the prince of a king, he would have the most luxurious accommodations possible. And if there was no guest room available, well, you make one available because you're the king. But Jesus comes, and Luke says he is willing and fine with being laid in a manger. Because that's how God works in this world. It shouldn't surprise us that that's what ends up happening with Jesus. Because in, in Isaiah 53, the prophet says, Who's believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is typically the power of God to do things. It's the power of God to accomplish His purposes. And you think when he's talking about the arm of the Lord, he's saying, okay, God is getting His army together, and this is going to be... This is going to be a, a, a powerful a, a show of force. But Isaiah 53 goes on to talk about how God's Messiah is a suffering servant. He is rejected and ultimately dies for the sins of the people. This is the kind of Messiah. This is what the power of God looks like in this world. And even when you get to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation that describes Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, now we're going to see his power on full display. And there certainly is some of that. But it intrigues me that in Revelation chapter 3, in his letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, behold, pay attention, 
I stand at the door and knock. Kings don't knock on doors. People who have power don't knock on doors because to knock on a door is to imply that the person inside has power. They have the power either to open the door or to leave it shut. They have the power to welcome you in or to reject you and make you stay out. The power is with them. And if you are enamored with earthly power, you would never do that. If you have earthly power, you don't knock on doors. If you want to go in, you break the door down. It's a show of force. And yet here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords knocking on a door. Waiting for it to be opened. This is the nature of God's kingdom. It's not that that God is saying he dismisses all power. It's redeeming power. To the perspectives of the kingdom that Jesus described and describes in so many places. Like the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and the manger and the cross. Because it's this kind of kingdom, everyone that Caesar doesn't see, God sees. Everyone that Caesar says is insignificant, God says is significant. Everyone that Caesar uses and manipulates, God embraces and loves. Because that's the nature of of God's kingdom, of Jesus, who is the king lying in a manger. He saw Macaulay writing about the the Magnificat of Mary. Makes this interesting statement. He says, Mary doesn't look down the long hall of history and construct a God that suits the, the imaginations of people who feel powerless. But rather, this God is already there, waiting for Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and me, and you. This is our God in human flesh. This is the God who says, you're valuable, and all people are valuable. Despite what everyone else thinks, despite the optics of our world... God looks at every one of us and says, you're significant. The question for us is, do we believe it? And maybe even more, do we live like we believe it? Father God, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. It is an awesome thing to ponder the kind of God that you are kind of God who looks at people like us and calls us valuable and significant to you, to your kingdom, to the world. May we believe that. May we live like we believe it. In the grace of Christ.